where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. If you've been in bondage to sin, depression, any of those things Brandon was just praying for, you're in the right place because the Lord's word is preached here. And his spirit is always with his word. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. All right, we'll get into our continuing study in the book of Luke, which we're in chapter 2 and have been in the uh, section surrounding the birth of Christ and uh, what's led up to that. And now just shortly after his birth, what happened. And we looked at that last week a little bit. We'll give a review in just a moment. Um, you see the title of this message is The Faithful of Our Fathers, and um, there's a man that we're going to learn about this morning named Simeon, uh, who a lot of times in the kind of reading of the Christmas parts of the Bible, I guess if you want to call it that, he might get skipped over by some, um, but we have a lot to learn from him, just as we have a lot to learn from all of our people who have gone before us in Sunday school, we were talking about uh, Pastor Dunlap that started this church in 1989, and here I stand on the shoulders of him and his wife and all the others that uh, built up this church, and now we have the privilege to continue uh, on the mission work that they started. And as I was thinking about this, it came to a reminder to me back some years ago, I did my pastoral internship at a church called Neighborhood Alliance Church in Longwood, Florida. If you're ever north of Orlando on a Sunday and you need a great church to go to, uh, that is one. I did my internship there with Pastor Tom Myers, and during that summer, uh, there was kind of a church uh, event, festival, whatever you want to call it, that. And as part of that, there was a football game. Now, I've never been much of an athlete, to be really honest with you, and you've probably figured that out. But this football game was all the youth against all the old guys. And guess what team I was on? I was on the older. So we get there, and I'm like, I'm not sure if I even wanted to play. But I thought, well, I'm here for my internship. I better participate. I guess I have to. And I got there, and (laughs) they had got shirts for our team. And these were about the ugliest T-shirt I've ever. I don't think I ever wore it again. Do you remember that, Chanel? It was black with gold sparkly letters that said glory days. (laughs) And all of us uh, on the glory days team, I don't even remember. I don't think we won, but uh, we were having sore days after that uh, game with the youth. What a dumb idea. Um, Anyway, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at this morning as in part is that as we look at Simeon, I want you to be thinking about those people who have been in the faith a long time. They've been in the church a long time, and they've been looking to see what the Lord's going to do in their lives for a long time and what the Lord will do in his church. And so they are people that we ought to be considering uh, in light of the wisdom they have, the years of experience they've had. And there can be a tendency sometimes among young people to consider older folks behind in their thinking. You may have observed this. It's a very common thing. And I think maybe worse today than ever in history because as technology advances faster and faster and and information advances faster and faster and education is 
faster and faster. Every generation, there's youth at their age that know far beyond what the previous generation knew at the same age. My kids blow me away at what I, I, they say they know. We were in youth group the other night, and Leland read the word blitzkrieg, and he said, I don't know what that word means. And one of my daughters said she knew both parts of the word. Well, this part means this. This part means that. I was like, whoa, where'd you learn that? Well, World War II history. Okay. I, I don't think I was in that till high school, but, and I don't think I remembered blitzkrieg either. But because sometimes this is the case, that younger people are learning so fast, they have technology that makes the older folks' head spin sometimes, that we might tend, as when we're younger, to look at older people and think, well, they're so behind. Old-fashioned or glory days, right? Um, and I think we need to talk about how we can learn. Uh, young people need to learn to value and respect older people. They have much to teach. And at the same time, older people uh, have a lot to teach the younger people. In fact, I was thinking as I was preparing this, if we could combine the ingenuity and the energy and the excitement of the youth along with the wisdom of the, the older folks that have gone before us and the things that they know, uh, it would be a powerhouse. And guess what the church has within it? All of those but sometimes we don't see it, the value in those that are different than us and what we can do together to accomplish for Christ that's far more than we could have on our own. All right, so we're going to read our passage. I'm going to read the whole passage again, and then we're going to focus in on the parts about Simeon this morning. But we're going to start at Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and we will move forward. And when the time came forward for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his mother and his father marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In the way of a quick recap from last week, we looked at that ceremonial part that Mary and Joseph did. Uh, we talked about their obedience to God and keeping the law. Uh, they were going to the temple to do as they were required to do under the law of Moses. We read about that last week in Leviticus 12. If you weren't here, you can go back and read that at some time and see what it's talking about there. Uh, so they did two main things there. They, number one, 
present him to the Lord. And number two, offer a sacrifice. And the, the passage we just read said that two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this sacrifice was less than the sacrifice that was actually prescribed in Leviticus 12, which was a lamb. But then as a concession for the poor, God gave this provision that they could bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so this was what Mary and Joseph brought. And what we talked about very briefly uh, to give you a clue from last week was uh, the reason all of our um, nativity scenes are wrong because they have the, the wise men standing there by the, the uh, cradle or the manger is because if they had brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that would have made Mary and Joseph at least temporarily rich folks, right? And thus, when they went to the temple, they would not have brought a sacrifice of two doves or two pigeons because that would be actually lying to the Lord. And I don't think we can assume that Mary and Joseph would do that based on all the obedience we've seen already. So we know that at least 40 days was when they went to the the temple at 41 or 42 days. So at least that long before uh, they didn't have that gold frankincense uh, frankincense and myrrh yet. So anyway, that's a recap of last week. If you're interested in that and you missed it, it's on the website. You can go look at it there. All right. Now, verse 25, uh, we're going to look at Simeon. Who was Simeon? It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, if you've been with me through this series, you may remember there was a couple at the very beginning of Luke that also had a very similar description given of them, and that was Elizabeth and Zechariah. So Simeon was righteous and devout. His behavior towards others and towards God was upright. As far as people knew, of course, we can't always know people's heart, but the appearance of this guy was that he was doing all things to the glory of God. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Much of Jewish's history, their Jewish history, Israel's history, involved bondage, as you know. Um, Many times the Jewish people have been under the thumb of other nations or powers, either enslaved or uh, otherwise mistreated. And many Jews longed for the consolation of Israel. Remember the time that this happened. The Roman Empire was uh, at its kind of glory days itself, right? And Israel was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So Many Jews were longing for the consolation of Israel. Simeon certainly wouldn't have been alone in this. But since Scripture mentions that as part of the description of this man, we ought to make note of that. Today, many people wait for consolation or vindication. And just like in those days, a lot of times they're looking for it politically, right? If only the right political person will get in office, then... It'll be the way things ought to be. Uh, The the thing that we end up seeing happens usually is when we think the right person's in office, often they turn out not to be the one we thought they would be or to do the things we thought they would do. Um, But people today, just like Simeon, are looking for kind of a a consolation, a vindication. Um, And sometimes that's okay. That's a good thing. We want to long for things that bring God's glory. 
So if something we're hoping for involves God's glory and, and his, his um, glorification through us or through the church, those are good things to long for. And believers, that is, people who have put faith in Jesus Christ, we have that hope for future consolation. That we will have every tear wiped from our eye. That we will see Jesus and know God and have him be our God and we be his people. Many people today await the glory days, but they aren't even sure what that means. We are blessed in this world. We have gifted artists, whether it's visual art or writing or songwriting or those with the dramatic gifts. They give us ideas about how things could be. I remember seeing some years ago a certain movie that came out, the second version of Lately, um, and I haven't seen the whole thing ever, um, but there's a bunch of blue people in it. And people were said to have come out of the theater so amazed by the spectacular pictures in the movie uh, and so enamored with the beautiful uh, creation of that fictional world that some even committed suicide. Because they came away from the screen and saw that beautiful, and that's artistic gifting, people. Whether you think the movie's good or not, we have to give some credit to the artistic gifting. And people saw that, but compared to the world they felt they were in, they were in despair once they came out of the theater. So we have these artists that can give us a glimpse of some great things. They give us ideas of things how they could be. And yet, outside of God's plan for salvation of people, none of those things will ever meet our need. Whatever your favorite mode of art is, whether you're the type that likes to go view paintings or see plays or movies or read a book, no one really truly finishes consuming that media and says to themselves, that's it. Well, now I know exactly what bliss is and what peace is and what happiness is. Rather, these artistic expressions at their very best, they only provide to increase our real longing, don't they? And the Christian knows what this longing is for. Jesus is the ultimate fulfilling of that longing. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Just as Simeon was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. We wait eagerly. And also the writer of the Hebrews talked about this eager waiting. In chapter 9 of Hebrews it says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, 
and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was what we call a pre-Christian believer. What does that mean? Well, the Bible teaches that those who were saved in the Old Testament times were saved by faith, just as people are saved today. The difference was they didn't know the name of Christ. They believed in a future provision of God, and God counted that faith as righteousness, as he did for Abraham. And so no man was justified by the law. In fact, the Bible teaches the law actually revealed how sinful people were. So they could not be made righteous by the law. But they could be made righteous by faith. This means that Simeon, being a righteous and devout person, waiting for the consolation of Israel... And because the Holy Spirit was on him, he was a believer in Christ, even though he didn't yet know the name. It says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This means when he spoke, he spoke prophetically. Now we know this because Scripture tells us it. And in fact, his very words that are recorded here for us are included in Scripture And if we believe, which we do, I do, that the Bible is inspired by God and inerrant, as all of the Bible is, then we know that these words here are true words, that Simeon actually said them. And so we can believe that. Now, there's something interesting about this Simeon, according to our friend Matthew Henry from a couple centuries ago. Matthew Henry was certain that he had identified this Simeon. He believes it's the same Simeon who is written about by the Jews. And that Simeon Simeon was, according to Matthew Henry, a person known for eminent piety and communion with God. This Simeon was also of great note in Jerusalem, according to Matthew Henry. In other words, people knew about him. He was the son of a man named Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. And Hillel had founded a rabbinical school. What is that? A Bible college or a a college for people to go to learn how to be a priest or a rabbi. Um, Hillel was highly respected in in, uh, Israel. And he was only one of seven men and the first one to be given this honorable title called Rabban. R-A-B-B-A-N. And only seven men were ever given that title. Hillel was one of them. So Matthew Henry says, this is the Simeon that was the son of Hillel, the founder and president of the Hillel um, school. Um, And then Simeon himself, it says, was president for a while of that college that his father had founded. The Jews said of Simeon that he was endued with a prophetical spirit. They also rejected him. They rejected him because he witnessed against the common opinion of the Jews concerning the temporal kingdom of the Messiah. In other words, the teaching was the Messiah would come, but it was a temporary situation, not eternal. And Simeon disagreed with that. 
And what happens to people often when they disagree with the group? Get out of here, right? Now, this, is, this last one is really interesting, this point about Simeon from Matthew Henry. He was the father to Gamaliel. You may remember the name Gamaliel. Uh, he was the teacher of Paul the Apostle. Uh, Gamaliel was concerned about the Christians, uh, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. He was the one that cautioned the Sanhedrin, that's the, the ruling group of the temple, He's the one that cautioned them to leave the Christians alone. So Gamaliel was Simeon's son. Now, all of this to say, we can't know absolutely without a shadow of doubt that that's the same Simeon. But Matthew Henry is known for extensive research into these matters, and that was his conclusion. Either way, this Simeon was, was a man, as Scripture said, who is devout. Verse 26, it says about Simeon that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, isn't that a unique prophecy? Do you know anyone else who's had that prophecy? I have never read about anyone else. He was specifically told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. And then in verses 27 and 28, we read, he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and and said, and we'll get to that in a moment. So he came in the spirit to the temple. That indicates that he had received some sort of special calling into the temple that day. God called him from wherever he was and whatever he was doing to go to the temple at this time. Another example of obedience. Mary and Joseph were obeying the law and went at the appointed time to do for Jesus what the law required. And Simeon was responding to God's call to come to the temple right then in obedience. Simeon had received the promise that he would see the Lord's Christ So I suspect he was not only looking forward to this, eagerly awaiting not only the consolation of Israel, but his own special sneak preview. This probably occupied some amount of space in his brain, don't you think? He would be thinking about that probably all the time. So Mary and Joseph come in obedience to the temple to do what the law requires of them. Simeon comes and picks up the child. He was eagerly awaiting I remember when our babies were born, some eagerly awaiting grandparents who came in to pick up those babies. Simeon picks up this child, and he had been eagerly awaiting this. Now, I haven't read his autobiography, but I suspect that for Simeon, nothing else mattered much to him since he had received the promise of God that he would see the Christ. If you were sure of that, would much else matter to you and bother you in life? Now he comes to the temple. He's called to the temple. God calls those whom he is going to use for his purposes. And Simeon blesses God and gives this beautiful prayer. Some people have said, this is really the first Christian hymn. And he says this in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That first line, in other words, Simeon is saying, let me die now. I'm at peace. God had told Abraham that he would die in peace. Remember, Simeon faithfully and eagerly awaited the fulfillment of the promise he had received, but his faith had also put him at peace with God. The word in this line for Lord is different than the word usually used in the New Testament. Usually the word Greek word kyrios is used to translate to Lord. This is a word that's uh, pronounced something like despote. It's the word we get despot from. It, usually in our vernacular, a despot is not a good term to use. It's a ruthless person who's a dictator. But here in this context, this is a word that means sovereign, the master, the Lord, in a very strong way. In verse 30, it says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice Simeon doesn't say, Oh, I've seen part of your salvation. He doesn't say, I've been given a glimpse of your salvation. He doesn't say, well, step one, what's next? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is all of salvation. Salvation does not come through Jesus plus works. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. This is salvation. Simeon says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simon here, or Simeon here is speaking of a universal salvation. Now be careful that we don't take the wrong words and, and cross them here. Because there's also a universalism, which, or people that believe it are called universalists, which... They believe basically everyone's going to get saved eventually one way or another, no matter what they did, no matter what they believed. That is not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what I'm saying here. When Simon says this is a universal salvation, uh, he is saying this salvation is not limited just to God's people, Israel. It's not limited to the Jews, but people from every tribe and nation will experience this salvation. And he says, a light for revelation, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isaiah 46, 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And then in verse 33, after Simeon said this, it says his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. But Simeon wasn't done yet. He has something else to say. This he addresses directly to Mary herself. It says, he blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Simeon could now die in peace. All who see Jesus for who he is and put faith in God for his salvation can die in peace. He allows people to die in peace. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want to just cover really quickly that last line, that thoughts 
for many hearts may be revealed. Um, without getting into a whole Greek study for you, this phrasing is in the negative. The thoughts for many hearts that will be revealed through how they react to Christ is considering negative things, the way Simeon is saying this. So he's saying their bad thoughts are going to be revealed. Jesus will be like a touchstone, right? Whatever people uh, react, however they react to Jesus reveals something about them. So, so Simeon waited for this consolation of Israel, waited for his fulfillment to what he was told, that I, he would see the Lord's Christ, and now he's seen it. Now he can die in peace. Jesus allows people to die in peace, especially, even those who moments before their death look to him for salvation. John or Luke 23, starting at verse 20, 39, uh, tells us about one of the criminals that was hanged with Jesus on the cross. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the, the, the criminal on the other side, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This man put faith in Jesus at the very end of his life with minutes to spare. I do not strongly recommend this strategy for you. For you do not know the moment that God will call you to judgment. Do not delay. The time for salvation is now. God calls you to believe in Jesus Christ who lived as a man, who died sinless for our sins and was raised again to life everlasting. This Jesus calls you to faith in him. Either you will die or you will return to him at, at any moment. Revelation 22.20 20 says that he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, it says. But Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. He's coming quickly. So come to him before he comes to you at your death or at his return. He's coming quickly. Either the time for all mankind is quickly approaching and the end is going to come soon, or your own mortality will come to an end soon. You don't know whether the good God will cut your breath short at any minute. There's all these stories. I don't know how accurate they are. There's a lot more young people dying suddenly, just dropping. No accident, no prior illness. They're just dropping. You don't know the moment God will cut your breath short. So you must come to him. And come now. He commands you to believe in him. He commands you to repent of your wickedness and sin. If you do not, the wrath of God will consume you for all eternity. For the unrepentant, nothing awaits after death except the wrath of God. Each day as you consider it, continue in your sin, you're stirring up and storing up God's wrath to you, upon yourself, to your own judgment. Romans 2.5 says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, that means you will not repent. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He is coming soon for everyone. 
Either Jesus returns or our lives end and we face the judgment. Will you not put your faith in Christ? Your judgment, the wrath of God that you've stored up for yourself can be placed on Christ. He already paid the price to restore you to a relationship with God, to receive his perfection and righteousness as a covering that will spare you from the wrath of God. And this word is trustworthy. Revelation twenty two twenty one says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. We who are saved ask Jesus to come. It's a prayer of many believers throughout, Lord, come quickly. Some people say it after every news report. <laughs> Lord, come quickly. And yet, while we await his coming, he continues to call sinners to repent so that none of those he has chosen for salvation will miss out on his call. We call to Jesus who are in him to come, and he calls sinners to come. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let the thirsty come. Have you been thirsty for a drink that truly refreshes? Are you dry and weary, sick and tired of your sin? Then come. Come to Jesus. He calls you now. Come. Simeon was thirsty. He had been awaiting the consolation of Israel. When he was called, he came. And he received the refreshing he so desperately needed. The criminal on the cross was certainly thirsty, and not just the thirst that comes as death is coming and life is expiring. He saw his need. He looked upon Christ. Yes, this man from the very cross of his own death, after having been tried and convicted by men and was about to enter the judgment of God, realized his need. He came to Jesus. He looked on Jesus and put full faith in him, just as Simeon some 30 years before that had looked on the baby Jesus and put his faith in God's salvation. That man, dying next to Jesus, came to him, looked to him, and received his salvation. Is it at all possible that this many had somehow on that cross done some sort of works, um, that this man had done some sort of works on the cross? Do you think that's possible? He said, okay, I finally realize I need God, and I'm on the cross. Let me do some works so that I can get in. We think that's, a lot of you are chuckling at the very thought, and yet people think they can do that in this life while they're still alive. Oh, I'm pretty good. I can do some good things. And then he'll love me and he'll take me in because he'll have to overlook my sin because of my goodness. And that's not what the Bible teaches. But no, this man, all he had to do to receive God's grace was simply to look upon Jesus and come to him in faith. Any prospects he had to save himself were hopeless. Just like us. And we may look down on that man and say, well, yeah, he was desperate because he was about to die and so he was more... Uh, ready to receive or something like that what if you're not in christ you're dead already you don't have to be on the cross to be a dead man walking or a dead woman walking if you are not in christ there is only one other category for you dead in your sins but you do not need to remain dead in your sins come to jesus i i plead with you Please come to him. Is your heart breaking because of your sin? 
And perhaps you think your sin is too much. He will not turn you away. He delights to cover your sin with his blood. He is pleased to do it. It brings much glory to him when a sinner is forgiven. He loves it and all of heaven rejoices as well. Come to Jesus. I plead with you for Christ himself pleads with you. For this purpose I preach his gospel. It is true. It offers you everlasting life. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Would you be righteous? Live by faith. Come to Jesus. What have you to offer him? Nothing but your sin and your miserable self. But he'll take it. And in exchange for taking your sin, he will give you his own righteousness. He will grant you eternal life. Be warned, though, that following this call will not make you popular with people. You will be hated because you love him. You'll be ridiculed. You may even lose a job or friends or family. It's very likely. He promises his followers they will be hated because he was. And because we're his servants, we won't be better than the master. If they hated me, Jesus said, they'll hate you. So you should know that before you come to him because that's what will happen. It's not an easy life because you follow Christ. And many here have been mocked or even worse for loving Jesus and trying to live out their faith. And they would testify to that. Many in our world every day are killed, sometimes by their own family for coming to Jesus. You're not promised wealth and easy living if you come to Jesus. But what is all that? What if you are persecuted, if you are harmed for the sake of Jesus, what is all of that compared to eternal bliss? What is the mocking of people if you're approved by God? For you who believe already, take heart. I see the news just like you do. I fully expect that we as believers may feel the wrath of the God-haters. Some of you already have. But we live in this promise Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in other words, Paul, if you read in Acts, you can see all the things that guy went through. And not many Christians have gone through that much, certainly probably none among us. With all the pains he went through, he said it's light, momentary affliction. 
Why? Because compared to the eternal weight of glory, it was as nothing to him. If you've never come to Jesus, come to him now. And if you have come to Jesus, keep coming to Jesus. Know for certain the assurance of your salvation. Any persecution or mistreatment we might receive, we should consider, like Paul, to be light, momentary affliction. And that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we don't live for today. We live for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Lord, it's truly amazing